Hi everyone, this is Garrett Marquis, Global Head of External Communications here at BNY Mellon. Welcome back for another episode of our BNY Mellon Perspectives podcast. We have spent the past month celebrating Hispanic heritage in the United States, and today we get to hear from two prominent financial leaders on ways the Latin American region is transforming, developing, and becoming even more attractive to investors all around the world. One of those leaders is our very own Alejandro Perez, our Chief Operating Officer of Global Market Infrastructure. He's in conversation with Mauricio Claver Coron, who leads the Inter-American Development Bank, or IDB as it's commonly known. As you may be aware, the IDB deploys its $150 billion in capital in development projects across Latin America and the Caribbean. The bank's investors are representatives of more than 40 countries from across the world. IDB partners with governments and the private sector, including financial institutions, to maximize investments in the region and make a global impact. Mauricio discusses the IDB's Vision 2025, which actually has some serious synergies with BNY Mellon's growth agenda. He discusses the burgeoning high-tech sector in Latin America and how IDB is helping the region on its digital journey by supporting blockchain, fintech development, and more. He and Alejandro also discuss the IDB's relief efforts post-COVID and ways the IDB is supporting ESG investing throughout the region, not only to help optimize return for investors, but also to help us lead a more sustainable future. He also talks about ways the IDB is a regional trailblazer towards gender equality, offering some stunning statistics around progress they've made there. Lastly, Mauricio offers his views on opportunities for increasing public-private partnerships, given his unique vantage point on the cusp of the two. So please enjoy today's high-energy discussion on a region where we see huge potential for growth. As always, please listen, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. See you at the next episode. Hi, Mauricio. Great having you. Hey, Alejandro. Thank you for having me. I'm really looking forward to our discussion here. I really want to take the opportunity just to hone in in the region, Latin American region and Caribbean. It's, it's not often that I get to talk about home um, yeah. in episodes like this. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to chatting with you a little bit um, and not only learning about you, um, the Inter-American Development Bank, and what you're doing there, but also what what is your view and your prospect on on the region as a whole, particularly given everything that's happening uh, after the pandemic. So before we get started, there's a lot we want, we can talk about, but I, I just want to really get down to you. We we just talked about uh, our common heritage, um, both uh, from Cuban background. Tell us a little about yourself. You grew up in Miami. What, what was that like? And how did you get to the Inter American Development Bank? Well, I appreciate the question, and 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 you know we were just talking about our common heritage and. And you know, I always say whether we're, we're both products of, of Cuban refugees, but whether we were born in Miami, San Juan, Caracas, Madrid, uh, New York, you know, we all have kind of a similar DNA in that regards and a similar ethic that are and and and, and drive uh, to succeed, uh, particularly kind of from the situations that that our our, our our families fled. Indeed, I was born in Miami, uh, but I was raised mostly uh, early on in Madrid. My mother's Cuban. My dad is Spanish. My dad was actually. Uh, a Spanish diplomat. He was at the consulate uh, in Miami, and as and as obviously as you know, my 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 mother was a, a Cuban refugee, and she was based in Miami, and 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 then she got into politics and worked for the mayor, in Miami commissioners, and and that's kind of a little bit the political drive there. After Madrid, I went to high school. I spent a small period of time in Pittsburgh, uh, six months, which made me the biggest Pittsburgh Steelers fan you'll ever meet. I went to undergrad at uh, at, at Rollins College. In, uh, in Winter Park, Florida. It was a small liberal arts school. Then I came to law school uh, up here 
in, uh, in Catholic University and then Georgetown. Uh, I really wanted just to be a college professor. I started getting into Latin American affairs. There was the professors at Rollins became like my best friends. One in particular, Dr. Pedro Pequeño, just changed my life, uh, got me really interested in the region. Uh, and so I said, and then, and then actually another professor that used to go spend the J terms, uh, January terms, the winters in, uh, in Orlando uh, from uh, Johns Hopkins called Dr. Franklin Knight, a Caribbean specialist. And he said, no, you got to become a lawyer. And I was like, oh, I don't know if I want to become a lawyer, you know, so. That then led me to do an internship here at the Congressional Hispanic Caucus. When I did that, I was actually placed in the office of a, of a, of a very uh, uh, effective congresswoman uh, who is now the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi. Uh, and I learned a lot from that experience. It really gave me a passion uh, for D.C. and a passion for being really to become a lawyer and, and politics. So I made my mother happy because, as you know, in our heritage, uh, our mothers want us to be doctors or lawyers. Uh, so at least I made I made I made her happy in that regards. But then I practiced as little as I could. I became a banking lawyer. I was at the office of the controller of the currency, uh, working on Basel II uh, for a while. And then, but public policy interests, you know, really kind of took over. Uh, I appreciate the training I got in law school in that regards. Uh, but then I started, you know, so it was a good mix. Uh, but look, at the end of the day, the biggest value that I had is the is the gratefulness I have uh, to my parents. Uh, to the community that I came from in Miami, that immigrant community, people from all parts of Latin America uh, and the Caribbean that taught me the value of, uh, of hard work and pe perseverance. And so, you know, from there, you know, the long trek of, you know, banking lawyer to policy advocate. I'm loving doing this podcast. I had a radio show on Sirius XM called From Washington and Mundo. And then here I am. And also essentially one way or another, it led back to Treasury uh, in a different light uh, than the U.S. rep at the IMF. Uh, went to the National Security Council, and that led me to be elected to lead uh, the IDB. Here at the IDB, as you know, we are the largest. Uh, we were founded in 1959, uh, and in that regards, ironically, it was it was founded right after the Cold War, right after the the the, the, the Cuban Revolution. And 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 while it was an idea that had really came about from the 19th century, uh, the Pan American Alliance, etc., it was really kind of the Cuban Revolution that finally got the U.S. To say, wow, we need to do something to help economic growth and development in Latin America and the Caribbean uh, and to accelerate social economic development there. And so here we are. The, this institution has also progressed uh, since, obviously, 1959. I am the fifth president. I'm the first American president. Uh, I am the second youngest president. The youngest president in the history of any international financial institution was Felipe Herrera, Chilean, who was the first president of the IDB at 37. I'm the second youngest in the history of any finan international financial institution as well. Uh, I was elected at, at, at 45. Um, and the institution has developed as well with the times. We have a private sector arm called IDB Invest, which finances private sector companies. But we are also the only inter international financial institution that has an innovation laboratory called IDB Lab. And that does early stage investment, works with entrepreneurs, test pilots, programs to spur development. And that's fantastic. And by the way, that's something we're going to talk about later in regards to VC investment in the region and digital is huge. We are owned by 48 countries, uh, which includes 26 borrowing member countries in Latin America and the Caribbean. Those are our clients on the public side. And on the private side, we do our clients, our private companies that look to have development impact. The non-borrowing countries here, the largest shareholders, the United States. Uh, second largest shareholders, Japan, but also then Canada. Uh, and we have countries in Europe, Asia, Israel is a member of the bank. And, and, and overall, we uh, provided last year almost $22 billion, uh, which is a record uh, a year in regards to turnout for, 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 for the bank in our envelope to help financing, obviously, to beat back the pandemic, recover sustainably $22 billion. So 
In some, we do everything from old-style infrastructure projects, everything that you've heard in the 20th century, building roads and, and highways and bridges. And now I'm helping turn the bank to the 21st century. So, you know, we just, we're, we're doing 21st century infrastructure, digital. We just, we're working with companies like Netflix to, to do 21st century skills training, investing in digitalization, using blockchain technology to help attract sustainable bonds. So all kinds of new creative things that we can talk about, obviously, but that's a broad overview of, of, no, I, I, I appreciate that. And I mean, that's fantastic and extremely helpful. I think it does help um, our, our audience. Um, as you talk about, before we get into specific topics, mm -hmm. you talk about bringing the bank to the 21st century. I took the opportunity to read through your um, vision 2025 and how you're positioning the bank or your plans for the bank. And you're, you're, you're actually making some radical changes and you have a, a pretty good strategy from my point of view um, on, on what you want to accomplish and how. Can you talk a little bit about, hey, how do you come up with it? But B, what are you most excited about when you think about that vision? You know, it's one of those things that ironically, the pandemic has actually uh, changed completely and brought huge opportunities to the region. As you can already probably see, I'm an optimist. I'm a natural optimist. I'm a defiant optimist, uh, I've been called. Uh, and I'm very proud of that term. If there's any description of me that I love is that whole notion. A little bit of energy, just a little bit of energy. I got a little bit of energy. I'm, I, I don't get tired. That, that I don't do. So, you know, I, I think that the way I looked at it when we came in and I said, look, I don't want to be an institution of just diagnostics. I want to be an institution of solutions. So let's start looking at how we deal in our first 100 days, how we deal with the pandemic, right? So looking at the pandemic, how do we deal with, with uh, obviously, vaccines? So we got a billion dollars together in the first 100 days just for vaccine development. We need to create and help with, you know, uh, the, the negotiations with bilateral uh, institutions between the countries and the bilateral pharmaceutical companies. So then what we started doing, we're the only international financial institution that created an indemnization uh, mechanism so that we can help guarantee uh, the purchases of, of those vaccines from, from the pharmaceutical companies to the country. So we had to deal with all that. But I was like, look, we have to start looking at tomorrow now. And, I, and I've said this many times over, but I really truly believe it, is just the same way that we saw. There would have been no renaissance without the bubonic plague. I mean, the renaissance came as a result of the bubonic plague. You know, the, the roaring 20s and, and early 30s, like that came as a result of the 1918 flu, Right. So what are the opportunities that we have today that stem from uh, the pandemic and what we've learned today? Look, one, first and foremost, Vision 2025, five areas. The first, nearshoring. I'm obsessed with nearshoring, but it's real. It's happening. Every survey we've done says two-thirds of companies that outsource their global value chains far away are looking to bring them in closer. They just have to. Look at the glut that we're seeing every day. It's getting worse and worse and worse. It's not about geopolitics. This is about pro-Latin America and the Caribbean. It's about nearshoring. It's about closer to uh, uh, the market in that regards. Even the Europeans were like very hesitant, and now they're starting to get it. I was just on a panel where the Germans were talking now about how some of the things that they are exporting that China exports to Germany can also be exported from Eastern Europe. And it's the same things. So they're even talking about nearshoring in their own capacity. So it's not just a geopolitical, it's a reality. And every day you turn on the TV, you're seeing a glut of, of containers. Uh, uh, you're seeing people like have to, I, I just saw a story about how like Coke uh, is now having to like, like literally bring in uh, um, raw materials and like coal frigates uh, to do bulk shipping just to be able to come here and continue to produce. Uh, you're seeing the price of transportation has tripled, uh, quintupled in many cases. Like, I mean, this is a, a, a huge crisis that we're facing that has really been unearthed by the pandemic. And I think companies are thinking, wow, did we make the right bet here by outsourcing so far away? 
That's a unique opportunity for Latin America and the Caribbean. We need to take advantage of that. And look, at the end of the day, the countries are going to be masters of their own destiny, right? They need to also have the right policies for investment, et cetera, so they can take advantage of this. But what can we do as an institution? Japan and the Internet American Development Bank, us, are the only two entities in the world that are financing nearshoring. If you're a U.S. company, you're a European company, another company that's based in China, you want to pick up and move your plant to any country in, uh, in Latin America and the Caribbean, we will finance that. We will work with you to bring that in. And, and, and at the end of the day, that's because we can't miss the ship. We can't miss it. Uh, uh, it's a unique opportunity. So nearshoring, integration, whatever you want to call it, uh, is hugely important. Two, digitalization. Look, if we would have done any marketing campaign, any type of marketing campaign to try to educate about the importance of digitalization, I don't care who we hired, how we hired, when we hired, maybe 10% of people would have said, oh yeah, digitalization is important. There's not a human being today in the United States, in Mexico, in Argentina, Brazil, Japan, you name the country, France, that does not understand the importance of digitalization. The winners and the losers of this pandemic are defined by who was connected and who wasn't connected, who was connected uh, uh, with good infrastructure and who wasn't. So today, everybody understands the, the importance of digitalization. So let's take advantage of it. There's a unique opportunity that we have through digitalization in a transversal way to really have an effect on, on, on people's livelihoods and everything. And I call it the three T's. Telework, teleeducation, telemedicine can transform, can transform the region. And we can talk a lot more about then also the innovation there in the region in that regards. Third, small, medium-sized enterprises. Look, at the end of the day, just like here in the United States, small, medium-sized enterprises, the heart of the economy, the heart of jobs in the region. And then also the heart of the problems, right? Like the biggest problems that, 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 that faces the region is informality. That stems from these small, medium-sized enterprises that aren't connected to the formal system and then therefore don't have you know, pensions and social services, uh, uh, et cetera. Digitalization helps a lot there uh, in that regards, but also financing what we can do as an institution to help loosen finance, but also bring them in through digitalization to the formal sector, through fintech, et cetera, is a unique opportunity. We're never going to have, we can talk about informality. We've talked about informality for decades. We're never going to have a dent on it unless we do so today through digitalization. And it's making a huge difference. And I'll give you an example. Chivo Wallet in El Salvador, there are 600,000 people that are banked in El Salvador. There are now 3 million people that are on Chivo Wallet. And Chivo Wallet is, is Venmo. It's literally fintech. So if we can do that, have good marketing to literally through fintech, change the atmosphere. And you're seeing it with other companies. You're seeing these, the, all, all these companies are being created in the fintech sphere in the region that are already unicorns. Like every day there's a new unicorn in this sphere. That's going to be transformative of the region. Small, medium-sized enterprises are key. And by the way, the best talent in the world. I have seen in Miami people from every country in Latin America and the Caribbean Go to Miami, all levels of education, all cultural backgrounds, all races, et cetera, and be able to start a small business and succeed. It's about the ability to do so. It's the same talent. There's a great study here that came out recently about you know, the, 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 the uh, demographic group here in the United States that had most sets of small, medium-sized businesses across the board are Hispanics. It's the same. It's the human capital of the region. It's our people. They're just literally coming here and have the ability to do so because it's easy. And then they succeed in doing so. They should be able to do that in their own countries and succeed. That's the goal here, right? So, so it's not the human capital is the best in the world, the best. So they should be able to do it there. And I think it makes all the difference in the world. Fourth, gender. Hey, look, gender, if, if, I'm going to blow you away with a statistic. Because I, 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 if, if literally women were to participate in the labor force in Latin America and the Caribbean, 
just at the same rate, at the median of OECD countries, it would lift GDP in the region by 20%. 20%. Biggest obstacle right now. We have to, and the pandemic made that worse. So that's not, that's not an opportunity, but yet a challenge that made it worse because, you know, women had, they took care of not only kids, but then the parents. And, you know, that, that falls culturally upon uh, women. Small, medium-sized enterprises that are owned by women in the region as a data point are 10% more successful, have 10% greater revenues than those owned by men, but yet have 50% less access to financing. That's the gap we're trying to bridge. If we can bridge that financing gap for women in the region, that's going to make all the difference and that's going to have a huge boost, a huge opportunity. And then finally, fifth, climate. And look, the way we're putting this is, is this is not a zero-sum game. Climate is an opportunity to create jobs. Renewables is an opportunity in the region, has its challenges. I don't think this region gets the credit that it merits for the advances it's already made. We, this, this region is a champion in renewables. You know, Brazil, which gets a ton of criticism across the board, is, it, its energy matrix is like 80 plus percent uh, 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 hydro. Now, a drought has come now because climate has now made impact on renewables also as well. There's a drought and obviously we're having all these issues. But yet, you know, it's far in advance in regards to energy matrix to, frankly, just about any region uh, in the world. But what are the opportunities there? And this, and this region is highly committed to it. So be a leader in, in renewables, but also, now to just close the full circle, from climate and renewables to number one, to the integration and, and, and the value chains. Look, if we're going to have windmills everywhere creating energy, 90% of windmills are created by, are, need copper. Where's two-thirds of the world's copper? South America, Chile, Peru, you name it. If we're going to have electric batteries everywhere, where's two-thirds of the world's lithium? Bolivia, Argentina, Chile, Peru, some in Ecuador, now some in Colombia, uh, Lithium Valley in Mexico. If we're going to have solar panels, where's all the, the second largest deposits and, 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 and really prospects for polysilicon? Chile. Where's the, second, the world's second largest rare earth mineral deposits? Brazil. So even, even in, in that whole gamut of supply chains, and, 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 and by the way, then there's challenges we can talk about later as well. Like, you know, we don't want the region to just be export dependent. And that's the whole point. You're going to create jobs. You create development impact. You have closer supply chains. No, let me, let me follow up on that because I wanted to ask you, on, on, I'm going to follow up on a few topics, but on the nearshore, and you just touch on manufacturing. Obviously, when we think about nearshore, immediately assumption is manufacturing. You talk about raw materials available in South America or Latin America. You talked about um, the talent and the skill set available down there. But, but what, would be, what would you say, for example, to organizations that are, think that, that are continue to outsource professional services, technology, right? Technology needs, operational needs, service needs. Um, what would be your message to them as they continue to grapple with concentration risk in India concentration risk or political risk in China, you know, to me, there's an untapped potential. But the question is, how do you take advantage of it uh, adequately? You, you probably are much better positioned to talk about it than me, obviously. I mean, that's a, it's a great question. I'm excited about it. I literally had Netflix in my office yesterday. And one of the things that we were talking about was we did this great 21st century skills partnership I mentioned early on. Um, one of the things that we were talking about is literally the skills. When, when I first got elected, then everybody said, oh, my God, this is a, a different president here. Uh, um, look, I know the person that put together the deal. It was an old, old, uh, old, uh, old, old uh, uh, partner of mine who put together the deal for Jay Baldwin and McDonald's. So McDonald's, like Jay Baldwin was the first kind of like McDonald's global rock star, like the Michael Jordan. They do like meals and everything after they do this whole thing. It was right during COVID. 
right during COVID. So literally, they would literally have taken up and the whole production of that, of that campaign would have been done in Los Angeles or New York. Jay Baldwin didn't want to leave Medellin, Colombia. And literally, the production had to take place all entirely in Medellin. And look, all these companies were like, you know, McDonald's, everyone's like, oh my God, you know, how do we do this? Can this be done well, et cetera? Best. It was amazing. And now these companies are like, wow, why aren't we doing more of our production down in, in Colombia? It's like the quality, the talent, the, uh, it's amazing through the roof. And look, Uruguay just came back from Montevideo. Uruguay remained open during the pandemic and literally the boom in audiovisual production, like movie sets, et cetera, all went down to Uruguay so they can keep filming uh, during the pandemic. And literally there's this whole boom, the talent is through the roof. And by the way, in the Spanish speaking, I was just today talking about the Dominican Republic that's doing a lot of training uh, in that regards, language training, Central America, you know, we talk about Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, the training uh, in the languages. There are all actually a lot of call centers that are taking place. It's really a question about scale. And in that regards, you know, and I've talked to these companies and the companies say, yeah, hundred percent, but we can go to one of these countries in the Caribbean, we can go to Belize or we can go to Jamaica, we can go to Barbados, El Salvador, some in the Dominican Republic, some in Guatemala, but it's not enough for our demand. So like India is like a one-stop shop because there's just so many people and they all speak English and it just becomes easier. So our challenge there is to try to create scale uh, in that regards and to bring, bring, bring that together and to continue skills training. But across the board, the talent is there. Now, there are particular skills that need to be trained, and that's why we're so highly focused on skills training. The skills training will be game-changing across the region if we can just end part of that digitalization push and all of that, if we can just get it, you know, uh, 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 so, so there we're not just doing it through our traditional programs and our traditional programs on the public side. We're partnering. We're doing uh, 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 skills training across the board through different programs uh, in, in that regards. We're talking also, we're, we're, we're helping some companies do some creative stuff. There's, there's an interesting company in Brazil that's literally kind of front-loading skills training then already has uh, uh, um, kind of like some demand from some big companies, et cetera, to hire those people. And then essentially they back pay after they get hired and start working for their education. You know, that's, that's you know, a good market oriented approach uh, as well. So it's all about skills. The human capital is there, but it's all about the right skills for the right time. And that's our big challenge. And that's what we're working on nonstop because that's, that's the biggest 21st century solution. And by the way, well, the good thing about digitization is that we can do that now any place, anytime, anywhere. That, therefore, we need the digital skills to do so. And look, and I say this a lot, it takes you know, two years, three years, many years to build a physical bridge. It takes two weeks, two months to build a digital bridge. So I, I tell you, I mean, reading through your paper um, is exciting, is encouraging, but hearing it from you live takes it to another, another level altogether. Let me, let, me, let me touch on digital. I'm seeing a trend, and I want to see if you're seeing it and what your views are. With many small fintech startups, mainly young individuals coming from the region that are now thinking about, can I bring the tools back to the region to, through technology, educate, I mean, open access to investment and capital to consumers down there, but also give them the tool to educate them and actually help them make the investments, not only to grow the markets down there, but also benefit themselves. What is your take on that? What are you seeing um, from your point of view? So let me start with like fintechs per se, because I think fintech is a huge success story in Latin America, and it's only going to get bigger. By the way, already this year, so October of, 2020, of 2021, we've already seen this year the 
largest inflows of venture capital investment for digital in uh, uh, the history, in history, right? Already doubled last year, which was four billion. So we're almost at nine billion this year. Doubled last year and was more than the last prior three years put together. Now, what does that say? It says like the talent and the ideas that are spreading out are really, really, really uh, huge. And I think a lot has that uh, has been done and is to be done. Look, there's companies. Think of companies like Walla, which is growing really quickly in Argentina and Mexico. What's the largest company in Latin America today? It's not an infrastructure company. It's not like the quote unquote, the Odebrecht of the world. You know, it's Mercado Libre, right? You know, that that is the future uh, in the region. Unicorns are spreading everywhere. And companies like those are helping to bring the regions and is this key, large unbanked population into that formal economy for the first time ever. So we're not just talking about informality, we're actually trying to do something about it. Just 50% or so of adults in the region have bank accounts. So when we look at, at lending as a share of GDP or whatever, we're just lending to half of what we should be lending to, uh, to the region's smaller companies. And that's a huge opportunity. I mean, you're a banker, that's a huge opportunity, right? Uh, so what we wanna do, and, and just looking at since the pandemic, people in the region have opened at least, at least somewhere, and my, look, my numbers are somewhere around 50 million, 40, 50 million new financial FinTech accounts to be able to access, and by the way, this is just emergency COVID era cash transfers or government subsidies. So the work that we've been doing to help governments digitalize is having an effect and making people want to digitalize more. And that's key, right? Like, and by the way, we also began the digital transformation of the bank itself so that if we're going to advocate for digitalization of governments in the region, we have to be best in class as well. Brazil alone, right? Brazil alone, which is one of the, has, has, is one of the region's uh, uh, largest digital banks, opened like, like 30 or, uh, 30 or uh, of, those, uh, of, of those 40 or 50 million accounts. And that's, and that's a huge uh, opportunity. I think that, that if, if we look uh, uh, at the number of fintech companies that are sprouting out, you know, uh, uh, we've seen already this year, there's double the number of fintech companies that, 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 that have sprouted out throughout the region. The region probably accounts now for, for over a quarter of all fintechs worldwide, right? And that's a big, and that, and that's a big, uh, that's a big deal, a big opportunity. So I'm very excited about uh, uh, fintech. Now, let me just say something about Bitcoin and all of this stuff. Now, we also want to make sure that those transfers are more effective, right? And and in so and and in so being more effective, we want to make sure that that um, that we're working a lot. We have Lackchain, which is all everything we do in regards to digital currency, and and obviously in regards to blockchain technology and things of the sort. But the benefit here for small, medium-sized businesses is huge. We've seen it. Sixty uh, percent or so of 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 the of the fintech financing is going to small, medium-sized businesses. When I saw this whole Chivo Wallet thing, I'm seeing that people sending money to small, medium-sized businesses. So, so that's going to be key uh, in that regards. And by the way, when we did the, we did, we did uh, um, recently, a few months ago, the first, I didn't, I couldn't understand why in 60 years of this bank, we had never done a Miami LAC form, right? So we did our first event in Miami. And we did this event in Miami and we literally had, uh, 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 it was super successful. We did $100 million of deals with the business just in two days that we were in Miami. But here's the most important thing. I met three types of investors in Miami. There were ones that were saying, hey, I want to do more. Uh, I wanted to invest more in Latin America, but I wanted to have a U.S. nexus. Yeah, okay, great. Uh, we can help there. Two were a bunch of investors that came from all over. I invested from like India and Kenya, et cetera. They went to Miami and would never have thought about Latin America until they stepped in Miami. And, you know, once you're in the potaje of Miami, you want to invest in the region. So they were interesting. But the third is the most interesting. It's those that were traditional investors that say, hey, I lost a shirt off my back in Latin America and the Caribbean on traditional infrastructure. And I kind of I haven't wanted to go back. But now the digital sphere is what's opening the door. 
So the key is going to be now, and that's incumbent upon us, to work with governments in key areas to create innovative regulatory sandboxes so that they can modernize frameworks, develop that talent, improve the infrastructure, expand access to digital tools because the interest is there. It wants to come in. And so we need to make sure that that doesn't happen. Uh, and really promoting that ecosystem of financial innovation in Latin America is, is, is one of our priorities. I just had now uh, the head, the, the president of the government of Madrid, uh, Isabel Diaz Ayuso, who's, who's kind of a rock star in her own right in Spain. And we talked about it. I just came back from Montevideo and I've talked to, to, to Mayor Suarez in Miami about it. My dream is to create this whole like digital triangle. I call it the M3, Miami, Madrid, Montevideo, an inverse digital triangle, an ecosystem where it's not just for financing flows, but for skills training, uh, uh, but also kind of talent flows. Look, you're seeing all of these companies. Like you go to Madrid, uh, we just reopened our office in Madrid, which had been moved to Brussels. And when we opened it, it's in the Madrid lab. And everyone there was 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 were digital companies from Argentina, Uruguay, you know, Mexico that had been moving over to Madrid. You're seeing it in Miami as well. You see it. I mean, and Mayor Suarez has done a great job in in, in bringing in not only from New York and Silicon Valley, et cetera, but they're coming from the region as well. Yep. So all together, we create that ecosystem. I think we have a game changer. No, and I think by the way, it. Hey, um, I know we're, we're coming to tokenize assets and be able to facilitate cross-border payments, which is something I know the IDB has been involved with, and that's uh, opening tremendous opportunities uh, for the market. I mean, it's an area that we at Bank of New York Mellon are fully focused on. It's going to be fascinating. Almost to the end of the session, but I do want to touch on one more topic, if possible, yep. and that's around ESG and you know, environmental social governance. And in your mind, we'd love to hear your thoughts on how is shaping particularly all the work you've done on public-private sector, right, and the partnership between the public uh, and private sectors uh, in the region. How do you think ESG is influencing that right now? Because I, we, we see a lot of potential on our side, but I want to hear from you and your see. Great question. Look, opportunities abound. I'm really excited about ESG. For those that don't know, we're a pioneer in social bonds. Like, our strategic priorities are obviously in following the sustainable development goals of UN. Like, to me, like, if you look at it from, like, a big macro picture, to me, the SDGs, the UN is like, we need to invest about $3 trillion yearly. Uh, uh, and, and, and that's just developing countries. Uh, but good news is, ESG investment, as you know, and you're seeing it, is surging. Uh, and, and, and that's great, right? Like, you know, it's like 50 trillion assets by 2025, and everyone's talking about that. That's great. We're seeing this rose in 100% since 2016. Here's the with us. We are, you know, what we want, we want you to make money, you know, and, but here's where we come in. We want you to make money. But our job as multilaterals, our job in international finance is to help people, help improve lives, help the planet, and help promote good public policies in that regard. So what we're trying to do is help create and grow that market and mobilize and be catalysts uh, 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 in, 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 in that regards. Let me give you just one example to give you kind of see so you can see how much interest there is. We just launched a bond in July. It was a $3 billion, seven-year sustainable development bond. Demand exceeded $4.5 billion from that $3 billion, showing like really how easy it can be to, and, and just the trust that's coming in. So we're seeing that strong demand uh, coming in all across the board uh, and the high participation of bank treasury, central banks, uh, official institutions uh, uh, across uh, uh, the boards. So that's helped us raise funding while being able to highlight the increased kind of lending to mitigate impact of all these uh, thematic issues uh, in, in that regards. Now, the challenge becomes that as these finance ministries are focusing more on sustainable loans, they need to be more creative, figure out those opportunities, but also we need to like help promote transparency. I'm super proud of what we've done. By the way, 60%, I think, of bonds, of thematic bonds in the region 
we're co-listed, we're, we're, we're done uh, through the IDB. We've done everything from green bonds to, to gender bonds to social bonds. We're doing now blue bonds. Silver economy is going to be an important issue coming up. We're going to look, we'll probably see some silver bonds uh, out there. So we're doing across the board. Our job is also to make sure that we have impact. So we also want to help and be creative in showing that there's impact in those investments. So we just launched a green bond transparency index. So basically so that you as investors can really see we're not only doing our job in, in mobilizing that private sector participation, but then you can see the stage of that, that, that money is actually invested in the green projects and see the stage of those projects and has to increase confidence. The reality is to deal with the awesome challenge that we have in regards to uh, climate across the board, private sector financing is going to be key. And our role, our role as multilaterals is you know, to really help catalyze and mobilize that from the private sector, uh, but to be able also to show impact. Uh, and, and then look, if, if, if you make money from it, if we're creating, generating jobs from it, and it's good for the environment and for people, like, that sounds like a win-win. Yeah, I believe it's, yeah it, the, the value proposition is such that it's hard to actually ignore it. I mean, uh, from, from any private investor, I would imagine it would be very difficult. But let me just, let me, let me, let me raise one thing. Just last month we did, because I'm really, 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 really proud of this. We launched a partnership with Intrinsic Exchange Group and the Rockefeller Foundation. We, knew, we created a whole, this is the cool thing about innovation. We announced a whole new asset class. We call it natural asset companies or NACs, right? And that are actually going to be traded. We just rang the bell two weeks ago at the, at the New York Stock Exchange. And it's going to create a whole new market to be able to generate, frankly, the potential is trillions of dollars in ecosystem services uh, annually. And that's, and, that's, and, that's, and that's huge. That's a huge opportunity. But that's kind of the stuff that we're doing here and partnering up like institutions. In regards to this uh, NAC in particular, we're working with Costa Rica to really lay the foundation for the NACs that, to help them preserve and grow natural assets throughout, throughout the countries. And we've also been looking at, at Suriname. But that, though, that's the type of stuff that offers win-win solutions to both companies, investors, countries. Uh, uh, to really allow and help move the public sector to invest in things like biodiversity, climate change mitigation uh, across the board. So it's a good, a good and exciting opportunity. Absolutely. Absolutely. Hey, listen, I know we're to the end of um, the program here, but it's been fantastic talking to you. I guess just as I wrap it up, you know, when I think about Latin America, right, you talked about um, you talked about nearshoring opportunities. You talked about talent um, as well. You talked about the digital uh, markets and, and the and the potential there. You talked, about, you talked about gender equality and gender full gender inclusion and participation, which again can unlock tremendous amount of value. And you talked about environmental resilience, which uh, I think that's what encompasses your vision there. What else are we missing for a, for a, for a foreign investor looking at Latin America? What else will you tell them why Latin America needs the future uh, from an investment point of view? Let me make it easy for you. Let me come knock on our door. You know, come knock on our door and we'll lay it all out for you. One of the things that we've done, look, here, let me just give you, give you this fact. We are the most, the best brand in Latin America and the Caribbean. There's a Reuters Ipsos poll that came out late last year, which shows what are the best brands in, uh, in, in Latin America and the Caribbean. You had UNICEF and the IDB, 80 plus percent approval rating. While we have a great deal of confidence, we're not really known outside. We weren't known here in the U.S. I just told you about this event we did in Miami. And we had, you know, literally it was like hundreds of investors from from, from almost 100 companies. We did 100 millions of deals in just two days that we were down there. And I think, and by the way, we're going to have more of a presence uh, now, at least from our private sector arm uh, down in Miami, so we can generate more deals. We got 1,500 companies have their Latin American headquarters in Miami. And, and, and we're here in D.C. Like, there's no deals to be made by the private sector arm here in, in D.C. Like, let's make deals in Miami, New York. You know, uh, uh, leave me here in D.C. on the public side dealing with the politics. But, you know, let's go make deals, right? So 
that being said, you know, we want to come closer to you. We want to go out there and, and, and really show you our menu. Uh, and I think that's really important uh, in that regards. Uh, we did the Rocha in Miami. We did a Rocha in New York. We're going to go across the U.S. We're going to do now. We're going to be in, in Hamburg. We're going to be in London. We're going to be in, in, in Madrid. We're going up to Toronto. Like, sell the Ivy how we can be a guide and a partner for you. Look, we're hearing about really exciting things that are happening in the region, but investors are looking for what role can the IDB do and deal with local currency risk? That's a big issue. So we got to innovate because if we can really kind of crack local currency risk, others will be willing to invest a lot more. Uh, how we can do first loss guarantees, how we can look at other more creative stuff. Like we have to innovate together. We're doing already some super cool stuff on commodity hedging. We just did a really uh, interesting commodity hedge with, uh, with Bahamas. Uh, that was that was really that was really interesting that we want to replicate in other places. I don't just want to like have the projects coming in. I want pipelines in all these countries to sit down with our teams from the beginning and start comparing pipelines and see what's interesting. So we can say, hey, look, this can have a big development impact. How do you get it across the board? Do you have what you need? And if you don't, because you're taking some type of counter cyclical risk, then we want to come in and give it additionality. So we got to be proactive, and that's what we're changing. So we want to go out there, knock on doors, show you our menu. Of, 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 of items that we have in our, in our, in our, in, in our knowledge, which is really best in class uh, across the board in all these issues uh, in our human capital. And by the way, our talent in country, we have in all 26 of our bar nations, we have representations. I used to be in the U.S. government. Our representatives and our offices in each of these countries have the best relationships across the board with the ministries, know the ins and out of the countries. You know, it's, you know, kind of, I would say, and information wise and knowledge wise, on scale is not greater than the U.S. embassies throughout. Right? No politics. We don't do politics. We do uh, uh, development and, and economics. So we have a great ability to, to work with partners in these countries. Uh, uh, that's really impressive. And as I've been here, I've been even more and more impressed with it. By the way, one thing I'm super proud of, we're changing the face of the bank in the region. When I got here last year, uh, uh, October 1st, 12% of our representatives, our, our quote-unquote ambassadors in these 26 countries, 12% were women. Today, one year later, 45%, 45%. So we're changing new, dynamic, diverse, changing the, uh, and they're, you know, working hand in hand with you guys in the private sector generally uh, to also provide new tools. You know, let's, let's expand that menu. It's not about, we're not about roads and bridges alone anymore, right? We got to expand the menu of items. We got to do hedging. We got to do local currency risk. Uh, we got to do things to help investors come in there, generate jobs, have development impact, that's the name of the game. No, that's, that's uh, again, fantastic and encouraging. Just, you know, our um, Treasury Services team here recently launched, just the last month, launched cross-currency sweeps uh, mechanism or, or service that is helping also our investors uh, limit their exposure to uh, FX volatility. So we, we look forward to doing more of this, you know, exciting. Yeah. It's in, you know, Mauricio, it's been uh, a privilege. It's been really uh, enlightening to just talk to you. Your enthusiasm, your optimism, but most importantly, um, you know, your outlook is just extremely encouraging. So good luck to you. Thank you very much. Really appreciate your time. Thank you, Alejandro. Hey, everyone. Garrett here again. Thanks for joining. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. As I said at the top, keep listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you consume your podcasts. Most importantly, and if you're willing, leave a review or rating and tell us your feedback. You can find us on social media, LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and of course, bnymelon.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you at the next episode.